This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Police say they got him. The NYPD says it's arrested the man suspected of shooting 10 people at a subway station in Brooklyn. So we'll go in-depth into who this man is and why he may have become the country's latest mass shooter. Some big airlines hoping the government would let passengers ditch their masks soon, but they'll have to wait a little bit longer at least. And the pandemic has taken such a toll on kids and their mental health that a government panel is now recommending kids as young as eight be screened for anxiety. We'll talk with a man in Ukraine with a background in engineering and humanitarian work who's now focusing on new projects to help the country's war efforts. The president approving more military aid for Ukraine. We'll look into whether this means the war will continue even longer and what role defense contractors are playing. And if you spend a lot of time, a lot of money getting that college degree so you could get that job, maybe you didn't need to. More businesses don't seem to care if you got that four-year degree. Now you tell me. Yes. Now. After all this <laughs> you work. You couldn't have told me that a long time ago. Now you tell me. Okay. We start, though, with the arrest of the suspected subway shooter in New York. With us is reporter Carol Dioria from 1010 Wins. Carol, how you doing? Good to hear from you. Uh, let's talk about this suspect. Federal charges, but is it being treated as a terrorist case? And if not, why the feds? Well, he is being charged um, federally with federal terrorism offenses. And, um, but it's not believed that he's connected in any way with any organized terrorist group. He doesn't seem to affiliate with any, anyone in particular. But needless to say, he certainly terrorized people on that subway yesterday morning when he opened fire and he, he threw grenades and had smoke all through the subway system there. So, um, yeah, he is being charged with federal terrorism offenses. And he faces life in prison if he's convicted. It was uh, your basic Crime Stopper tip, right, in the end that got him. They talk a lot about how they were closing in the nets. He couldn't use a credit card or anything because they would, they would ping him. They'd figure out where he was. But somebody saw the guy and said, I think that's him, and, and, and called it in? Well, you know what? A $50,000 reward certainly helps that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Everybody had their eyes, everybody had their eyes <laughs> peeled. His pictures plastered all over the TV, uh, on the Internet, in the newspapers. And so this morning... Uh, somebody actually it was early afternoon, New York time. Somebody called the local police and said, hey, I see this guy in the McDonald's restaurant, the fast food, fast food restaurant. So the cops went immediately. They go in there and he wasn't there. But they kept they circled. How far could he have gone? They had just gotten the phone call. So they circled the area a little bit. And sure enough, they spotted him, too. They picked him up. He didn't give them any trouble. He was arrested without incident. And phew. That's what everybody's saying. They're glad he was caught. Well, of course, there's something else, Carol, that probably people are saying, which is how did he buy a gun? He bought it legally, I understand, but he also has a pretty extensive police record, does he not? He does have an extensive police record. However, most of it is misdemeanors. He has nine prior arrests in New York, mostly misdemeanors. He also has um, arrests from New Jersey. Again, petty larceny, disorderly conduct, trespassing. And so he was able to buy this gun at an Ohio pawn shop where there's also a licensed gun uh, dealer there and uh, apparently had no problem with it. And he, so he got on the subway with a big bag. He had this gun allegedly in the bag with a whole host of other horrible, scary weapons that really uh, wreaked havoc yesterday morning. I mean, he fired that gun 33 times. 
That's what the police are saying. 33 shots. He struck 10 people. Uh, fortunately, uh, they all are expected to survive, so that's a good thing. But he also detonated two smoke grenades right in the subway car, and so it just filled with smoke. And we had to have people who were treated for exposure, for the smoke inhalation, and um, everybody is saying, you know, this could have been a whole lot worse uh, because he did an awful lot of shooting. The social media history and shedding some light on him, and it's a, basically, if we sum it up, it's it's a lot of hateful posts in a lot of different directions. In a lot of directions, you're right. Profanity laced throughout uh, the postings. He was on YouTube. He also um, was on different social uh, platforms. He said he didn't like New York City's homeless policies. He didn't like the mental health policies in New York. He didn't like the way the city was handling, <laughs> handling subway safety. He also criticized crimes against black people. He was just all over the map. And um, so they had spotted that yesterday afternoon. So they immediately, as a matter of precaution, just tightened the security around uh, Mayor Adams, who was home quarantining because of COVID anyway. But nonetheless, so they tightened that up. And it's just, you know, as you start to, as the hours go by, you start to build the pieces that make up this man. And so he... Uh, he was ranting for a long time. He has a criminal history. And uh, what he did yesterday really uh, shook up so many people. I mean, they, we rely on that subway. You can't get around otherwise. It's so, such heavy traffic, so many people. And, you know, to get from one part of the city to the other, everybody uses the subway. It's not like they can avoid it. You can't walk all the time. Carol Dioria, 1010 Winds in New York. Right now, the mask mandate for airlines and public transit was set to expire next Monday, but the Biden administration is keeping it in place for another two weeks beyond and as it monitors COVID case counts. Dr. John Schwartzberg is an infectious disease specialist and clinical professor emeritus at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So I guess about people listening to this, about a third are thinking, oh, good, we have to still wear masks about another third are thinking, really, we have to wear masks? And the other third probably don't care. What do you think? Well, I wish that everybody cared. And I wish that those people who think that wearing such a, a mask is such a terrible problem really give, give it a much more careful thought. What I'm getting at is that there's a lot of virus going around right now. Even though the good news is that we don't have a lot of hospitalizations yet from that. But it's very likely that people are going to get infected if they're on an airplane for any kind of period of time with nobody wearing a mask on that airplane. And not just the passengers, but think about the um, flight attendants and what they're going to run into with repeated flights with no one wearing masks. The thing we hear, though, from the <laughs> let's take them off crowd, though, is um, I heard that the uh, air was always super clean. They've got the filters. That's what they've advertised this whole time. And then also... Um, they say it feels funny to me not having to wear them anywhere else and then to go in the airport and suddenly you have to put it on. Sure, and I understand that. Well, first of all, the air in the airplane is much better than a lot of the air we, we breathe, um, for example, when you're in the grocery store. Um, but the grocery store, of course, has a lot larger volume of air that the virus can be dispersed in than in an airplane. The other issue with the airplane is that while the air is getting filtered quite a bit. They have many air exchanges going on. That's only occurring while the plane is in the air. When the plane is on the tarmac, 
there are not very many air exchanges and the air gets um, the chances of inhaling the virus when you're on the tarmac are much, much greater. So um, again, I would not want to be on an airplane right now in the midst of a pandemic, which we still are in, um, without having everybody have a mask on. But you know, the, the, uh, the two week thing, doctor, is I think what makes people scratch their heads. It seems kind of arbitrary. I mean, two weeks, uh, it almost seems more of a political decision than one based on science, is it? Yeah, here I th- here's what I think is going on. I really understand that question. Um, peop- the, the administration is looking at what's happening with the pandemic right now. The CDC is looking really carefully at it, what's happening in the United States. And in the majority of states right now in the United States, we're seeing an uptick in cases. In some cases, like states like uh, the Northeast, we're seeing a major uptick in cases. So removing the mass mandate, which was scheduled to go to be removed on the 18th of this month, would make no sense, um, to, no sense at all in the face of increasing cases throughout much of the United States. So I think adding on another two weeks or 15 days to that does make sense in terms of that's going to give us a chance to see what's happening. If in very early May or late April, we see the numbers start to go down again and the risks therefore to passengers markedly less, then the the administration might decide to get rid of the mask mandate at that time. If the cases are still going up, I would hope that they would continue to have the mask mandates. Frankly, if it was me, I would keep the mask mandates on for for interstate transportation for a good while to keep people safe. It's not, again, it's not a big deal to wear a mask, but it's a big deal to get COVID. Dr. John Schwartzberg, infectious disease specialist and clinical professor emeritus, UC Berkeley School of Public Health. And a little bit later on, we will head back to Ukraine and we'll talk to a man helping the country's war effort without using violence. And if you think your fancy college degree is going to impress businesses looking to hire, new data shows you're wrong. Right now, a number of studies have shown the impact of the pandemic on the mental health of kids and teens. It's such a big issue now. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force is recommending kids as young as eight should be screened for anxiety. With us is Dr. Lori Pieberts, member of the Preventative Services Task Force, also professor at uh, University of Massachusetts Medical School. Thanks for being here. So you think this is needed? And, and what does a, a screening for, for someone as young as eight actually look like? So hi, thank you so much for having me on and for your interest in our work, um, and particularly on this really important topic. So um, at the um, problem that we have is that there has been a tremendous increase in mental health conditions, including depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts and behaviors in our children and teens. And so we really want to be able to give guidance on how primary care can support the mental health of our youth through things like screening and early intervention. So we reviewed the evidence for screening on each of these topics and came up with actually some really good news. And that is that um, primary care clinicians screening children and teens ages 8 and older for anxiety and 12 and older for depression is effective in identifying these conditions in children and teens who don't have signs or symptoms. And that allows them to be connected to the support and the care that they need. Okay, so if they, you're saying to screen kids and they don't have symptoms. Is that right? 
Exactly. So the the yeah, but, 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 but here's where, but, you know, but here's where I'm going. Not that, but here's where I'm going with that. Don't you run the risk that if you have somebody who's essentially asymptomatic, and you start screening them uh, of turning somebody even at eight into someone who's neurotic? Well, you know that's a really good question, and I'm so glad you said that because when the task force makes recommendations, we're looking at both the benefits of the service and the harms or potential harms of that service. So you're bringing up a really good point. Screening, asking questions, completing a questionnaire is not without potential harm. And so, you know, there could be the harm of a, what we call a false positive, which just basically means that they're diagnosed, they're, um, to- they're suggested to have a particular condition, but don't have that condition. So you're absolutely right. When we looked at the evidence, we were able to feel confident that screening children and teens ages 8 and older for anxiety and 12 and older for depression, the benefits of doing that outweigh the potential harms. What do you look for in the pretty young kids who can't even really describe maybe sometimes what they're feeling or what they're experiencing? I mean, look, it takes people until their 30s sometimes to really talk about their anxiety. Exactly. And in fact, I know people who are well into their 80s who have trouble with um, really recognizing symptoms. So in terms of anxiety, there are things that the parent and the healthcare provider can take a look for. Things like, are you seeing that the child is having a fear of being away from their parent? Um, Are they expressing worry about the future? Are you seeing physical symptoms, things like sweating or dizziness when the child is, is experiencing anxiety? Are they refusing to go to school or take part in social activities. So these are the kinds of things that a parent and a healthcare provider can look for. And if there are any signs or symptoms of anxiety, that's a cue to assess and get them connected to care. But, and let me raise the contrarian question again, if I may. Uh, There again, I mean, you know, kids are... They have a lot of these, you know, they have angst about things. They're anxious about things. When you were ticking off your list, I think I could probably check off some of those boxes myself when I was eight or nine years old. Do you again run the risk of of turning what would otherwise be a normally healthy child into a patient? So that's a good question. You're absolutely right. Many children and teens have fears, worries. Many of us as adults have those However, anxiety is a mental health condition, and this is um, noted by excessive fear or worry that actually interfere with the child's normal activities. That's where you know that there is a, um, a problem, an actual mental health condition, as opposed to the normal fears and worries that, that many children and teens have. But that's a really good question. Dr. Lori Peberts, member of the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force and a professor at University of Massachusetts Medical School. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The war in Ukraine has changed millions of lives in the country. We've gotten a snapshot of that over the past several weeks, talking to people who've fled their hometowns and some of them who have fled the country. Roman Vidro is an engineer. He was an exchange student in Ohio in 2010 and has done humanitarian work before, even helping the Peace Corps. He's now switching gears and helping the war effort with a 
couple of different projects. Roman, thanks for being with us. So before we get into what exactly you are doing now in Ukraine, uh, where kind of are you in the in the country? And I suspect it's not in the city that you're initially from. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. I'm initially born and raised in the city of Kharkiv, which is in the east of the country. And you have probably heard about that city because it was heavily bombed during the first couple of weeks and is still bombed right now. And we made a decision to evacuate the city on the first day of war in order for us to stay productive, have the constant access to Internet and spend less time in bomb shelters. So we relocated to the western part of the country near the Carpathian Mountains. We managed to rent a house in a beautiful village with a decent internet connection. And we have set up headquarters for our, our projects. It's our base of operations. And uh, we are quite lucky because we get to go to bomb shelters only about two times a day, uh, which is in constant to, to contrast to what people do in Kharkiv is quiet and easy and relatively safe. I, I love the way, uh, by the way, yeah. Roman, only, the, two, the, times only two times a day, huh? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, it, it, me saying that it sounds sounds quite normal to me, but actually, uh, before you know, before the war, um, the concept of war was so distant from from me. It was something happening on the news, and so uh, right now, it's quite interesting how those forty something days of war have uh, shifted perception and uh, have established the new norm and the new normal for, for us. So like now, if someone is asking me how I'm doing and I'm saying that everything is normal, that would definitely be not normal just like a couple of months ago, you know? So it, that's why it might sound so bizarre to you that we are lucky just to go to bomb shelters like once, once or twice per day. You've been saying, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've been saying we and us. So, so who's with you? Friends, family? Yeah. Um, uh, I managed to help my uh, parents and my family uh, evacuate to safer houses, uh, but um, the group that we traveled with were my colleagues and a couple of close friends. There are six of us, uh, but the initial uh, trip that we took, we actually managed to get 12 people into two cars, but we also got uh, one dog, two cats, and even a turtle, and we traveled for three days through traffic jams, replanning our route so um, we would avoid the dangerous areas and cities that were bombed or the bridges that were being destroyed. But right now, we um, for the first couple of weeks, we had to uh, sleep. There were six of us in a one-room apartment, but then we got lucky and six of us actually moved to a larger house. And so those are my colleagues who worked on my engineering uh, uh, projects before and, and also the creative platform management, but also some of the friends who deal with cultural management. We have one expert in cryptocurrency, and it just happens so that we kind of run the projects together and amplify the work that uh, we could do. So, Roman, when you're not in the uh, bomb shelter twice a day, what exactly are you now doing? So uh, we managed to launch several projects. Um, the One of them is a service that helps connect uh, Ukrainians have a decent level of English with the media outlets worldwide. It's like a Tinder for journalists to some extent. We are filling this gap where uh, people just um, are journalists having to use a complex system of fixers and um, we can get, you know, I'm saying we can uh, give you a new 
Ukrainian every day because each person has unique stories that really create this uh, emotional connection between the media and the, and the viewer. And we have uh, about 150 people all over the country ready to talk. And we have satisfied requests from 30 something countries from like 150 media outlets so far. And this is one of the projects that could be found at uabrave.org. Uh, but also uh, we have a couple of projects that deal with culture. Um, my girlfriend who is here with us is doing another project where She's showing artists in bomb shelters, people who are not willing to leave their studios, that this little artistic world they were creating for themselves in order to freely express their creativity, they are still there you know, in those heavily bombed cities and they're creating art. And this is something beautiful when we are trying to make sure that it's visible, it's out there, it's at some digital expositions and museums and everything like that. Um, some fundraising uh, efforts, some technological projects as we are engineering engineers, we uh, have some requests in terms of defense and security that are quite simple, but really needed. That's also something we're doing. And we're just like, you know, um, switching from one activity to another uh, day by day, and then just walking in the mountains once our brains are fried. Okay, so <laughs> that's pretty much so. It. So Roman, you're, 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 you're clearly an entrepreneurial type uh, and hats off to you on, on, on that. And, and you're, you're good at putting all this stuff together. I'm also though wondering how optimistic you are, because you sound pretty upbeat, but you're, you're obviously, uh, yeah, but you're obviously aware that, that it's a dire situation clearly for, for Ukraine and uh, Vladimir Putin just yesterday uh, pretty much reaffirmed his determination to complete whatever it is in his mind he thinks his mission is. So how does that, if at all, uh, dent, dent whatever optimism you might have? Uh, that's a wonderful question. I was just thinking about it recently, and especially I was getting a lot of requests for interviews after the events of Bucha, and uh, I understand that things, you know, things look terrible, and they are, in fact, terrible, but... Um, it certainly has some effect on me because I'm also feeling scared from time to time. There's a lot of uncertainty, etc. But in the, these darkest times, I, I somehow managed to see beauty in what's going on as well. And that's a really interesting contrast feeling. And uh, because I see like my friends who are small business owners who are buying cars for the front line, or like I see game designers who are, desi who are building tools to detect ground troops via satellite images, or I see cultural managers who are raising money for medication. And uh, this is um, like, again, engineers who are building something that has never existed before and like create safety for civilians. And it shows that like nothing can destroy the free will of civic society, but most importantly, and that's what keeps my optimism up, it shows that uh, creativity in fact is the oil of the 21st century. You know, we have this enemy of Russia being a gigantic thing with lots of natural resources, with a territory, with actual oil and uh, uh, a whole bunch of people. And they are fighting for so many days, the nation that is using creativity uh, to come up with initiatives that help our, our army fight better and in a more efficient way. And this is a really... Uh, uplifting feeling uh, that what gives me a lot of pride because you know every grassroots initiative we run is uh, to some extent similar to a machine gun or a bulletproof vest but in in terms of numbers 
in that particular category, in this free creative expression, Russia is certainly outmanned and outgunned and outnumbered. And that's something like these narratives of lies and hatred that they were developing over the years. They, they, they had our, that, that secret weapon of civic society been hidden from you and not accounted for in the strategy. And I'm really proud to, to, to represent that part. And I'm really proud to see it all around me. Like no matter what person I encounter in the street, um, this could be anyone from any age group, like 17 to 60, I see how people are using whatever idea they have to get back to Russia, to turn this like creative spark into a fire that makes sure that Russia is paying uh, will pay a terrible price for the for the atrocities they're doing to the country. Well, it makes everybody so, part uh, of the fight, right? You don't not everybody is it, a soldier, it, but everybody's doing something. Exactly, and and uh, this is um, this this contrast shower, you know, of of moments when I experience emotional devastation when I go online and I see these images and I hear those stories in the interviews we conduct and organize. But then at the same time, I see what resilience it results to because this anger combined with, you know, with a plan creates courage. And that's pretty much what I see around in terms of coming up with new ways to, to fight that, you know, that, that nation is, which, which is putting itself on the other side of history. Is it, po- uh, is, and, it, and, is it possible, even at this point in time, Roman, for you to determine how what is happening now in Ukraine has changed you? Oh, I don't think so. You know, to some extent, I think this is something to, that, that, that will come to me later. Or, or, or like uh, the first several weeks, I didn't even have a chance to reflect and think about it because it was all about setting up some immediate action, you know, expressing that energy in something useful that can help us. Uh, like uh, that's a pretty normal reaction, you know, to fight back right away. Uh, then at some point, this adrenaline rush, it kind of uh, was substituted with a more stable, more thoughtful approach to work and uh, I feel like there are way more transitions like that to come until I arrive to this potential point where I could actually tell you how it's affecting me. I What I certainly understand is that our nation is being reborn right now and every person experienced it, it on the personal level in terms of uh, what you know this uh, action of kind of building your capacity because of the hard times you're living through. For different people, it's different because you know someone just has to live with the trauma or with loss, and someone has to uh, you know live with this um, like idea for a project. And the, the, these are completely different transformations. But overall, I see how this will definitely make Ukraine stronger and will certainly uh, result in in some. Um, development, you know, some some explosive development once the war is over, and this war will end eventually. So it's it that what keeps the spirits up, it, regardless of the fact that it's obviously Im- extremely exhausting, and you know, people are working twenty four seven, and I'm not even, you know, like people who are actually fighting with guns in their hands, and um, in in these conditions, obviously go through a way way dangerous challenge and so every 
person goes through different transformations, but overall I see how it creates uh, like the nation in, a, in, in the way that it's shown in movies and in the way that I read in history books. I how, see history happening right in front of us. That's, that's extremely interesting. How far away or not far away does that car ride feel now with the 12 people in two cars and four dogs and a, a turtle? Um, I actually, looking back, I, um, it's really hard for me to understand how we managed to pull this off so fast and so accurate and um like we had a couple of times when i had to drive for more than 20 hours and right now looking back i'm thinking like wow like how did i manage to drive non-stop for like 20 something hours and like repeating this from day after day but now i understand that you know this is war you have adrenaline rushing up and you just do stuff. You know, I'm curious, um, uh, Roman, you, you said uh, in passing, uh, you referred to, to Russia as, as the enemy. And you also referred a little bit later on to the war will eventually end. And, and I suspect you're right one way or the other about that. Do you think you will, for the rest of your life, always now consider Russia, Russians, your enemy? Um, yeah, I think this is, this one will stick around for quite a long time. And, uh, that's, um, that's another paradox of this war because the narrative that Russia was building for that entire time for decades, actually, uh, was around those brotherhood nations that are, uh, you know, just bound to be together by nature and um, actually, if you look at statistical data within the last decade or so, the perception of Russia, this positive perception in terms of statistics, it actually flipped up upside down even before the war. Not to mention that this aggression, not even aggression, this, this ruthless, senseless uh, genocide uh, of, of my peer Ukrainians, it, it just um, creates no basis for... Uh, you know, ever going going to that perception of Russia as as something uh, friendly and um, so, etc. Et and and there is an opinion in in the people I talk to that emerges that it's not just the politics. So it's not just the Vladimir Putin's war. This perception, you know, was kind of I heard it from time to time in the first days of war, but after those murders, after those. Uh, things that they were doing that are way far from a regular warfare, you know, laws and ethics. This is something that shows that it was not Vladimir Putin who uh, was killing children or was particular, like doing some specific actions that are now very carefully documented. And therefore, I now see uh, responsibility and in some case, actual um like not even just responsibility, but like it's something that gives me an ability to blame, right? I see that now in, in pretty much every single uh, person who did nothing about it for these decades once the regime of Vladimir Putin was actually growing stronger. And at some point, once it crossed the red line, it was just, it's just impossible for them to stop from within. But yes, uh, there's a common understanding now that it's not just the politicians or decision makers, it's actually the 
the entire society that actually let it happen over that long course of time. Because the, the, the worst things in life, you know, they just happen a teaspoon a day, just drop by drop. And that's something uh, that is hard to track down. But I know that in Ukraine, within the last decade, we had like, like a person who was born in Russia and let's say, like actual soldiers that are coming in, those 20 year old boys, they had just one president over their entire life, you know, and their peers in Ukraine, they had five presidents, two revolutions and a war. And uh, it actually shows that these decades that we were apart after the Soviet Union crashed in terms of like actual national sovereignty, they have created a major difference in, in, in perception. And they have uh, with, with this aggression and these murders right now, that difference actually comes uh, to the concept of good and bad. Yeah, and you're fighting for your country. Roman Vidrell, engineer there, uh, was an exchange student here in the States uh, in 2010, humanitarian work, and now all those different efforts uh, that he's doing that he was telling us about. Roman, thank you for talking to us. We hope we can speak again. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The president approved another $800 million in military aid for Ukraine. Comes in the form of everything from helicopters to armored personnel carriers to artillery. Joining us now is Alexander Lanashko, military and political analyst at the University of Waterloo, that is in Ontario, Canada. Thanks for coming uh, on the show. Appreciate it. So $800 million, uh, that's in addition to all the other money that went uh, for all the other stuff. Uh, Enough? I think it's the right step in uh, the right direction. I think uh, Ukraine has been rightly calling for more and more military assistance precisely because the war is entering a new phase whereby the offensive that Russia will undertake is going to be in the east. And it still, of course, is in possession of territory gained since uh, February in the south and has linked up those territories in and around Mariupol. And so for Ukraine to push out those forces. It needs much more than the anti-tank weapons that's been receiving in mass. It needs to have much more uh, heavy equipment. And the heavy equipment that the United States is providing, along with other allies, is a step in that direction. So how fast can it get there, all this stuff? Because that's kind of the race we're in right now before this uh, big battle that's expected for the East. They're going to need these things. Absolutely. And it seems like previous provision of military assistance that the United States has given to Ukraine has taken perhaps 10 to 14 days. It's going to take a while. Indeed, other allies of the United States, like Poland, Slovakia, have been providing military assistance. So I wouldn't say that there are bottlenecks, but certainly there is a logistical component to this provision of aid that cannot be underestimated. And of course, it's going to take time to figure out all of these things out on the ground. But, of course, we mentioned in the lead-in that uh, they're getting everything from, we said, helicopters to armored personnel carriers. What they're not getting are a lot of offensive weapons that they want, right? They want jets. Not going to get it. They want some other material. They're not going to get it. Uh, so is this going to be enough to be decisive for Ukraine? Again, I, I, it, it's hard to say precisely because we don't really know 
what is coming from some other countries, namely Slovakia, which has indicated its interest to provide some of those fighter jets that uh, Ukrainian pilots can probably operate uh, with very minimal training, precisely because they're used to flying such aircraft. And it's very much uh, possible that uh, the United States will green light uh, those transfers and backfill those transfers uh, such that Slovakia and other countries would feel comfortable in so doing. And if more of that sort of aid does come to the extent that it is coming, then that could indeed help push the balance of probabilities ever more so uh, in Ukraine's favor. Some of these things, are they in the situation where we don't use them anymore, so we're happy to give them? Or do all the defense contractors uh, around here ramp up to replace what we're sending overseas? It does seem to be that with respect to the Javelin missiles, the anti-tank uh, weapons uh, commonly used by Ukrainian forces, uh, they are being drawn from American uh, stockpiles. And my understanding is that about a third of those stockpiles have been transferred to uh, Ukraine. So obviously there's going to be a question about how sustainable this effort can be, but it does seem to be the case still that there is additional capacity for production to be ramped up to fulfill these needs. Of course, it goes both ways. Uh, you might think that it's unsustainable for the United States to provide these javelins, but it's also unsustainable for Russia to lose uh, armored vehicles as it has been in the last six, seven weeks. I think some people might be wondering, where does all this stuff come from? It, it seems like when it's needed or when it's wanted to be given to to some place, in this case, Ukraine, that there's all this this military hardware is it stored somewhere? They're not. They're not just manufacturing it at great neck speed, are they? No, they're they're not. Indeed, a lot is coming from existing stockpiles. So Poland appears to have given uh, about a hundred or so T seventy two tanks. Those were um, just held in storage. And like I said, with respect to the javelins, those too were held in uh, storage as well in U.S. Army stocks. And I think with respect to the end laws that the British have been providing, other uh, anti-tank weapons, those two were in storage. Although, again, I think we're going to see a, a ramp up in the production of those weapons so long as the demand exists. And certainly that demand does exist and will exist for the foreseeable future. Alexander Lanoshka, military and political analyst at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. Well, new research is out showing that a four-year college degree is no longer the requirement it used to be for a successful career. Four years ago, 51% of top companies demanded that qualification. Now, that is down to 44%. And many top corporations have pledged to make many more of their jobs open to non-college graduates as they look to increase diversity. Are you using your degree for this? You no. What was yours? No, a political science. Oh, well, then you use that here. No, I use nothing for this. <laughs> nothing at all. My psychology because degree doesn't help job me press required, these buttons either, so I guess... Job required absolutely nothing. Uh, Alexandra Von Tiergarten <laughs> is the Senior Regional Director for Global Talent Solutions firm Robert Half. I guess we are examples of, of this. Uh, so these companies are making these pledges, and uh, apparently at least uh, some more of them are following through. Yeah, absolutely. Can you guys hear me okay? Oh, yeah, you're we fine. We can hear you great. Okay, great. Yeah, we're, you know, with 11.4 million job openings and only, you know, 5 million workers, um, you know, looking perhaps, there's just, you know, things that employers have to do to um, to entice um, more candidates to look at their positions. And, you know, what we have found in some recent survey we've done at Robert Half is that, you know, there is some bending um, that's going on in pertains to education level, 
to advanced degrees and to years of experience. But are companies using the the non-college educated uh, route into their, their company as an excuse to perhaps not pay as well or promote as well? Because when push comes to shove, they say to somebody, well, you know, you don't have a college degree, so we're not going to give you X amount of money. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm an I'm an expert at at talking about that specifically, but I but I would say that um, we are not seeing that. Um, what we are seeing is that whether or not they hire someone that has a degree or they're open to candidates um, that perhaps never went to college, or, you know, or didn't complete their degree, um, the pay that they're offering is the same. So their companies are looking at jobs in a holistic approach of, you know, what will be required of this job um, versus this candidate is worth this much or this candidate is worth that much. Do you think sometimes there was just a lot of copy and paste going on, too, that was uh, presenting a bit of a problem that you would just write down, you know, four year bachelor's degree. That's what we need because that's what we think we need. And they didn't really actually go through the uh, the whole process and go or certificate, or the training, or something that we promote from within, or whatever it is, but they just put it there on the list of things that they thought they wanted. Yeah, I think it was a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a cultural shift, right, to look and see, you know, are there great candidates in the market that perhaps didn't take that path? And we're finding that the consulting that we're giving our clients is, do you want to see more candidates for your role? And if so, you know, what is your what is your company capable of doing? So some of the things that I talk to my clients about is who's in your training and development department? You know, how much training can you actually do if we bring someone on that perhaps doesn't have the educational background? You know, can you get them trained up in a certain period of time? Because then I may be able to show you, you know, seven candidates for your role versus maybe showing you one to two. And clients are, you know, they want to see more people and they want to get their rules filled. So they're having to look at, you know, maybe rules that they've had for, you know, 15, 20 years. And, you know, does that really make a difference or can we experiment um, and see what might work for us? But I'm curious, how do they explain if they do explain to current employees, existing employees who perhaps came into the door with the demand that they have a college degree, how do they then go to them and in effect say, well, you know, now we don't need it? Well, the consulting that we're giving our clients is to explain that, you know, we need to fill our roles and um, and we're looking more at training and development and bringing people up here, you know, versus demanding things that they bring in. Now, that isn't to say that all roles can be this way. You know, there are definitely, you know, certain functional roles within corporations that it would be difficult, you know, not to have um, not to have a degree and not to have some sort of um, training in that way. Do we also need to better explain the skills that you're actually looking for if you do take it off of the list of qualifications? I mean, there's so many job postings out there that you look at and you're like, what is this word salad that I don't understand? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that we do with our clients. You know, in fact, we ask them, what are the three most important things? What do you want to make sure that every candidate we bring to you has? Um, Because, you know, to your point, you look at a job description and you get exhausted um, at everything that they want in terms of the requirements. And, you know, with so few candidates in the market right now, clients understand. They just, 
they they can't demand the things that maybe you know they could have demanded in March of 2020 or they could have demanded you know in 2008 it's just a different market right now and we all have to be flexible and adjust um to you know what's out there and what is going to get people in their company helping them you know grow their company which is what they all want are there certain categories of companies that are more open to recruiting people who do not have college degrees we have not found that it's a certain level, like, you know, if you were looking for small or startups or midsize or large corporations, it really tends to be what are they capable of doing and how do they onboard the people? And that's what we find that if, you know, if their company is very thin in terms of who's there, then maybe they would have more difficulty bringing somebody in without a degree. But if they've got, um, you know, a certain level of training and development people on site, then they're able to. Alexander Von Tiergarten, Senior Regional Director for Global Talent Solutions at uh, Robert Half. You know, I'm, I've been adding up how much I spent when I went to college. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't no, look. Yeah, I, I could have saved a lot of money. <laughs> this has been In-Depth. Back tomorrow.